Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. So this Sunday school teacher walks in on a Sunday morning and she she greets her kindergarten class there at church. And she says to the kindergarten class, all right, boys and girls, if... If I were to wash all the windows of the church and sweep and mop the floors and and vacuum the carpet, would that get me into heaven? And of course, all the kids with one voice said, no. And she said, okay, how about this? If I were to sell my car and and sell my house and have a big yard sale and, and sell everything that I have and then give the money to the church or to the poor or to charity, would that get me into heaven? And, of course, the kids said, no, no, it wouldn't. And she then said, well, then what do I need to do to go to heaven? And a little boy in the back of the class raised his hand, and he said, you got to die. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you're right. I mean, you got to First things first, right? You, gotta, you do have to die. you got to die. But that little boy may be speaking more truth than he is even aware. Jesus said, if you want to see the kingdom, and not, not just the kingdom eternal, not the kingdom to come, but if you want to see the kingdom that right now is breaking into this earthly experience, if you want to see the reign of God that is breaking forth all around you, it requires dying to a particular way of viewing and doing your life so that you can rise up and live in such a way that you see the kingdom of God in all places. So yeah, you got to die every day. During this sermon series called Resurrection, that's what we've been talking about. We've been saying that it is absolutely possible to experience the true aliveness of resurrection, but in order to actually feel alive with contentment and joy and reconciled relationships and peace, it requires thinking of resurrection differently. It's, it's not that resurrection is just this one-time event, but rather it's an all-the-time invitation to a way of life. An all-the-time invitation to a way of life in which you and I are called to wake up every morning and deliberately die daily to old patterns to old ways of thinking and old attitudes, to patterns that lead us down pathways of self-destruction, we must die daily so that within us Christ, the risen one, may take over our lives and live within us. This is why Paul said, look, for me, to, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because when we learn 
how to die to the parts of us that take us down paths of self-destruction. When we learn to die to those old attitudes and ego patterns, when we learn to die to our sins, then we can learn to live in Christ, to become fully and truly alive with resurrection. And these last several weeks, we've been talking about specifically what would that look like in each of our individual lives. What does it look like in your family? What does it look like at your office? What does it look like for you personally to rise up each morning and die to self in order to be risen with Christ? But today I want to take the conversation up another notch, just another level, because this truth, we've been calling it the Paschal Mystery, the dying and rising of Christ, right? This, this truth is not just applicable to you as an individual, but it applies to every group or institution that you're, you're a part of. Every family must learn to die to some things in order to fully be alive. Every church must learn to die to some things in order to become alive. Every nation, every government, even, even religion. Even in our practice of religion, we have to learn how to die to some parts of religion in order for true life to emerge within that religion. And you're like, Rashawn, come on, seriously? You're like, you're a religious leader, and you're actually telling us we need to let go of some religion? As a religious leader, you're telling us to die to religion? Yeah, I am. And here's why, because the guy that I follow, the man who I have followed and has, has lordship over my life, never came to establish a religion. He never came to set up an institution with constitutions and bylaws. He never came to set up protocols about how to exist. With he came to radically transform what it means to be alive. Never meant to start a new religion. In fact, I remember my son was in class one day, and Jackson, his class, was talking about world religions. And his teacher said, all right, let's talk about the founders of each religion. So the teacher said, who's the founder of Islam? And someone said, Muhammad. That's right, very good. Who's the founder of Judaism? Somebody said, uh, Moses. Okay, very good. And she said, now this ought to be really easy Who's the founder of Christianity? And most of the class said, Jesus. And she said, very good. And she started to move on. And Jackson's like, no. No, no, no. Hey, ho, ho. No, he's, no, he's not. And she said, yes, Jesus is the founder of, of, of Christianity. And everybody turns around at him and looks as if, have you never heard of the story of Jesus? He, no, no, no. Jesus is not the founder of Christianity. Jesus was not a Christian, he tells this class. Jesus never became a Christian. Jesus never came to set up a religion called Christianity. And then the teacher, kind of a, oh, okay, well, Mr. Smarty Pants, well, who, who started Christianity? Who's the founder of Christianity? And then Jackson said something like, well, I don't know. There are lots of ideas. I mean, some could say Paul because he wrote half the New Testament. Others might say Peter because he was the first bishop of Rome and became pope. There are all kinds of ideas, but it wasn't Jesus. It's kind of a, kind of a proud dad moment, if I'm being honest with you. But he didn't. He didn't come to set up a religion. Now, he didn't come to destroy religion either. I mean, he, he even said, I came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. But everything that he did, everything that he came to do in life, uh, in his earthly ministry, was to dismantle every barrier and every obstacle 
that stood between a human being and their fullest, truest life of reconciliation and peace. He said in John 10.10, I came that they may have life and have it to the fullest. And every time, if you pay halfway attention to the stories of Jesus in the gospel, you recognize he is railing against religious leaders and religious institutional policies and laws and rules that at any point would cause an obstacle between a person and their free, full, redeemed life in God. Jesus knew the destructive power of religious rigidity. That's why everywhere you pay attention in the Bible, he's bending the rules and sometimes just flat out breaking them which I suppose is okay because he, he kind of wrote them, right? So he, he's breaking these rules, the rules that, that he didn't even make, actually, that, that we made in his name. And For example, he goes to worship one day. He's in the synagogue, and, and he notices this man with a withered hand, and he's in this debate about what's legal on the Sabbath, and he's like, so you can believe? Let me show you what's up. And he heals this man of his withered hand on the Sabbath. Makes everybody upset because he broke the rules. He's walking through a wheat field with his disciples, and they pick this grain, these heads of grain, and they're eating these, these pieces of grain. But he's breaking the Sabbath because this motion of getting the wheat away from the, the shaft is, is threshing, and you can't thresh on the Sabbath, right? Unless someone is hungry, then you feed them, right? I mean, this guy is constantly bending and breaking the rules of religiosity by bringing children into the middle of grown-up conversations, by affirming the role of women in his own ministry. In fact, even foreign women of other religions. The Syrophoenician woman comes up to him and asks for his help, and he, at, at gut instinct, says, you know what, it's not right to throw the food of the children to the dogs. I'm here for the children of Israel. It's not good to throw their food to the dogs. And she comes back with like a, a, a quick comeback and she says, well, even dogs got to eat the scraps from the rich man's table. And Jesus is like, oh, well, snap, okay. And he says, get a load of this woman. And he says to this woman who was a different gender of a different race and a different religion, he says, in all of Israel, I've never met anybody with that much faith. He is constantly trying to dismantle all of the, the barriers in religion that keep people from actually becoming truly free. You know, sometimes religion is a gift from God. I mean, it gives us practices and rhythms and, and, and disciplines that allow us to grow in our community and faith and our trust in God. But sometimes religion has the capacity to separate rather than liberate. So I have a, a friend, and everybody has a friend like this, right? You know somebody who maybe was turned off by faith or turned off and away from the faith because they experienced something so wounding in religion that they just walked away from the whole thing, threw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Because they had an encounter in which good religion went bad. So I have this friend, and, 
And he works with this guy uh, at his job. And this guy has not been to church in about 25 years. 25 years. What's odd about it is that he used to go to church all the time. He grew up going to church. And he went to church during the time, and many of you remember this, when you didn't go to church once a month or twice a month. I'm talking about twice on Sunday, once on Wednesday night. This was this guy because this guy, well, his, his father was the pastor. And they went to church all the time until the day that he told his father and his mother at about 19 or 20 that he's gay. And from that moment, his parents kicked him out of the house, threw him away, and he never entered into the church again. So now my friend, who's been working with him now for about three, five years, for the last two or three years of that relationship, he's been working to bring him into his church. Hey, come and check out our church. You're going to love our church. For two years straight, no, I'm not kind of a church guy anymore. I used to be, but not much anymore. Most churches really kind of don't want me around. And the guy said, no, don't, don't worry. Don't think about that stuff. All of us are imperfect and unfinished. Come on. We've got an amazing choir. The music is just out of control. Blows the roof off every week. You're going to love it. Come with me. After a couple of straight years of wearing him down, his friend said, all right, I'll come. And for the first time, in 25 years, he sits in church right in the middle of the sanctuary, right in the middle of the pew. There he is, and to his right, his friend, and to his right, his friend's wife and daughter. And, and the music is great. The choir really shows up, right? And then the preacher gets up and for 40 minutes rails against the abomination of homosexuality and as a scourge on America. And here this guy is for the first time in 25 years, and he endures the entire service. He gets up and politely thanks his friend for caring enough to invite him. And he's never returned, and probably never will. See, religion has the capacity to create a beautiful infrastructure and rhythm to our lives that allow us to do community and to belong to a beloved community in which we feel as if we are known by God and that we know God and because of that life can be alive and we can touch resurrection every time we come but at times if gone unchecked religion can separate rather than liberate and I can't think of a story in scripture that more illustrates what I'm talking about than the one that you just heard a few moments ago read by Annie and Michael. So Jesus is, is walking along and this religious leader, Jairus, comes and he falls at the feet of Jesus and he begs Jesus, Jesus, my daughter is sick and, and if you don't come, she's going to die. I beg you, the text says, he begged again and again, come and touch my daughter so that she may live. So Mark says that immediately Jesus takes off, and Jesus and Jairus are, are on their way to Jairus' home. But now word had spread about Jesus. It had gone around the vicinity, and they, they knew that he had the capacity to, 
to bring things back to life, for, for his touch to be able to bring resurrection no matter what the circumstance. So this crowd presses in around him as he's moving toward the house of Jairus, and it's shoulder to shoulder. I mean, there's no social distancing, and no one is wearing a mask. And he's moving along, and it's crowded, and there's this woman, this woman who shouldn't have been there, this woman whose religion said that it was against the law for her to be there. She had a medical condition, and in some translations it says it this way. It says, you know, she was, she was the hemorrhaging woman, or the woman with a bleeding issue, or a woman with the flow of blood. She had a constant hemorrhage, a menstrual kind of hemorrhage that no one knew the source of or the cause of. Was it cervical cancer? Was it some kind of a gynecological mystery that no one had ever seen? But it continued on and on. And because she had been bleeding for 12 years, she had been ostracized in every possible, separated from every kind of social connection. You know why? Because the Bible said she should. Her Bible said she should. The religious leaders knew the Bible said that if you're a woman and you're, you're having your, your monthly cycle or for any reason you have an issue of blood, a hemorrhage of some sort, you are considered, according to the book of Leviticus, remember that, considered unclean, unfit, unholy, profane. And you can't bring something so profane and unholy into the presence of the one who is holy. So she was declared ceremonially unclean. And until the flow of blood would stop, she couldn't come to worship. She could not go to synagogue. She couldn't go to the temple. She couldn't be with her family. She couldn't be seen out in public. near. You think six feet of separation is a thing. I'm talking about she can't get near the neighborhood. You can't go in the same house as someone who has been bleeding. You can't sit on the same couch if she has sat on the couch. You can't sleep in the same bed. And so in every conceivable way, this woman was relegated to the very edges of every consciousness. She was relationally ostracized, theologically rejected. She was psychologically lonely. She was uh, emotionally distraught. Because you cannot get more alone than a woman in her situation. And she tried every kind of remedy that uh, physicians or, or um, uh, wives would, would encourage her, to, wife tales, all kinds of homemade spun remedies. For example, I mean, she tried uh, three common remedies of the day. A glass of wine with powdered rubber mixed in it. And she tried uh, to boil Persian onions because the tradition was if you eat boiled onions from Persia and someone stands over you and says, arise from your flow of blood, then somehow, like magically, it's supposed to disappear. One of the most common ones that I'm sure she tried because the text said she tried everything was she carried around the ashes of an ostrich egg in a pouch right above her midsection. And nothing worked for 12 years. But she thought to herself, if I can just get close enough. I mean, this, I've heard about this guy. There's something different about this guy. If I can reach out and simply touch the hem 
of his garment, the very edge of it. And what she's talking about is this. It's the Jewish prayer shawl, the talit. I had to reach out to my friend, uh, Jordan, Rabbi Jordan Ottenstein, here in Johns Creek. And I said, can I borrow your prayer shawl? He said, I can find you one, but you can't have mine. i got to use mine. He, he's a praying somebody, see? And what she's talking about is every good Jew would have a prayer shawl. If he's watching, he's laughing at me for not knowing how to work this thing. And what the, the men would do at the end of the prayer shawl is the tzitzi. The tzitzi is made up of five knots, five knots that represent Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In Numbers, the men are commanded to wrap yourselves with the awareness, remind yourselves of God's command. And as you pray, remember the law of the Lord, right? In fact, I think it's interesting that you've, you've heard of this before because in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, hey, don't make a big show of your prayer when you pray. Go into your prayer closet and pray. The prayer closet isn't where you, you, know, you keep your, your socks and shoes. It's literally go into this prayer shawl and pray. The woman sees Jesus walking down the street, and Jesus is in a long robe with his prayer shawl and the tassels at the end dragging along near the ground. And she remembers an obscure passage from the prophet Malachi. She remembers in her pain these words, but for you who revere my name, the sun of, the ri of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. See, they used to call this at times the wings because it kind of looks like a pair of wings. And there is, according to her faith in what Malachi promised, there is healing in the, in the tzitzit, in the fringe, the tassel of the prayer garment. So there she is. She reaches out and she touches the very end, the tassel on his prayer shawl. And immediately she's healed. And Jesus stops for a moment. He feels this, this power surge through him and leave him. And he says, well, who, who touched me? And the disciples are like, what are, you, are you serious, really? Like, who touched you? we got a 1,000 people around us here. Everybody's touching me. Everybody's, everybody's up in our faces. You can't possibly be. He said, no, this is different. I felt power leave me. And he turns, and he sees this woman, desperate, who had reached out. And he kneels down to her, and he says, daughter, which is a term used by family, right? Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Never underestimate the power of reaching toward Christ. Every prayer that you've ever prayed and you felt like it, it just kind of bounced off the ceiling above your head, every hope that you've ever held up before him and you felt like it was totally ignored, it's never ignored. With all those people around him, he felt the touch of a meek woman desperate for life, and he stopped and turned and brought her back to life. Well, at this point, somebody comes up to the scene and says, there's bad news. Don't rush. There's no hurry. Jairus, your daughter, has died. And everybody 
begins to weep. Everybody begins to wail, and there's this, this frenzy of emotion. And Jesus says, don't worry, don't worry, it's okay. It's going to be fine. He makes his way over to Jairus' house. He goes into the house with Jairus and his wife and his three closest disciples, James, John, and Peter. And he touches the little girl and says, Talitha kum, little girl, rise. And she rises and is alive. But what I want you to pay attention to in this story, as I'm thinking about it, is typically when we hear these two stories, we think of them as two separate stories where Jesus performs this amazing miracle in two different ways. I mean, we often think that here's one story. Jairus has a daughter, and she's sick, and so Jesus raises her from the dead. And we think of this other story separately. We think of it as, well, here's this woman. He, she interrupted him, and, and, and now she's healed. After trying so many ways to be healed, now she's okay. And we think of them, of them as separate stories, but they are not. They're one story. I mean, all through Mark's gospel, he does this thing where he, he makes kind of a, a miracle sandwich or a story sandwich where he, he, he starts to tell one story, then he interrupts it with another story, and then he finishes the first story. But he puts them together so that you and I, the reader, will see they are meant to be weaved with one another. And I've been thinking for years about why is it that these two stories are told together? What in the world is Mark trying to say? Because here's Jesus and Jairus on their way to heal a 12-year-old girl. And they're interrupted on their way by a woman who's been suffering from this mysterious disease for 12 years. A gynecological disease. Something of a mystery that is not really understood. And why is the daughter dying? Something happened to shorten her lifespan. And what would it have been 12 years ago? And could it have been something similar or maybe exactly the same as the moment that this woman began her hemorrhage? Is it possible that this woman is this girl's biological mother? And 12 years ago, she and Jairus, gave birth to a baby, and something went tragically wrong. Now listen, here's what you got to do. you got to be careful when you read the Bible because it does not say that. It doesn't say it in the Bible, and you got to be careful not to put things in the Bible that are not actually in the Bible, right? But where the Bible is silent in places and gives characters who have no name and gives diseases that have no diagnosis, it's an invitation theologically to the reader to imagine the possibility that 12 years ago, Jairus and his wife were expecting a baby and something went so horribly wrong that she never recovered from it. There is a condition called obstetric fistula. And obstetric fistula is a condition even today. When we were in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, we went to a hospital, and there's only a small number of these kind of hospitals in the world. It's a hospital called the Fistula Hospital. And these women, all of the patients, are there because they are the hemorrhaging women. They are the women who, because of a variety of reasons, they were malnourished as children. They were abused. Some of them attacked and raped. Some of them had their, their, their bone structure even compromised because of their hard labor and lack of nutrition. So when they got pregnant, 
their bodies were not able to deliver the baby that they were actually able to conceive. And the event was so horrific that it, it destroyed part of their body, and they can't stop the hemorrhage. And the fistula hospital is there to repair and to bring back to life because these women, even today in 2020, are the throwaways. They're the ones who no other hospital will take. Jesus recognizes what's going on with this throwaway on the side of the road. Because Jairus was a righteous man. And if he was a leader of the synagogue, he knew that if his wife couldn't stop the hemorrhage, he knew what his religion told him to do, and he knew what his Bible told him to do. She had to be put away. Is it possible that Jairus had to put her away and begin to go on with his own life, maybe even Mary raise the daughter on his own. Again, the Bible doesn't say any of that, but is it possible? Because if it's possible, then beloved, that makes this miracle so much more miraculous in my eyes, because here's the truth. If this is the reality, then Jesus comes walking along, and he's on the way to heal the the religious leader's daughter, well, that's a very Jesus thing to do, and everybody can get on board with that. I mean, that's the pastor's family. Let's take care of them. Let's make a big crowd and see what Jesus does because that's what religion's supposed to do. But on the way, in this prayer or in this parade of the righteous, he's interrupted by this throwaway, this person who had been pushed to the edge, and Jesus turns his attention to her and not only turns his attention, but Jesus ah, forces Jairus, maybe for the first time in 12 years, to turn his attention to someone who had more value than even the town or the religion itself seemed to believe. He turns his attention and Jairus' attention, and he forces even the collective consciousness of the whole town and even you and me to turn and look at this woman in the face and in so seeing her makes her well. And Jesus does something here. <laughs> he puts to death all of the lies of separation that religion sometimes imposes. He puts to death and he buries every assumption that there are some of us who are clean and some who are unclean, some who are worthy and some who are unworthy. He crucifies it right there in their consciousness, puts it in a tomb, and what resurrects right there in front of all of them is a brand new way to see everything. When Jesus was crucified, we are told that the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom. It ripped from top to bottom because God was declaring that this presumed separation that you have with God is now over. That there is no separation, that God is in all and with all. That's what Ephesians says. We hear these words, there is one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. And we hear the Apostle Paul say in Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Beloved, if your religion puts a 
piety above people, then it's good religion gone bad. If your religion puts, I don't know, if your religion puts rule tending over relationship mending, then your religion is good religion gone bad. And if your religion focuses and, and puts priority on separation and isolation above liberation, it's good religion gone bad. But if your religion is a way of life that we saw in Jesus who in the middle of a parade of the righteous stops the parade and turns our consciousness toward those who are oppressed and forgotten and thrown away and rejected and lonely and sick and hurting, that's a religion worth all of your life because that's a religion of resurrection. That's a religion of resurrection and that's the kind of religion that heals. So, years ago, Tony Campolo is a sociologist and um, Baptist minister. He was making his way to Honolulu, Hawaii, and he lived on the West Coast. He's in Philadelphia. And if you go to Honolulu from Philadelphia on the East Coast, well, your body clock is kind of off. So he gets there kind of late, but his body's wide awake and he's hungry. It's like 3 o'clock in the morning, and he goes looking for a place to eat, and he can't find it anywhere. Except he went down this back street, and he found down this back alley, there's this diner. And the diner was open, hardly anybody in it. He walks in. It's a greasy diner, kind of a dump, just a hole in the wall, a dive, really. And he sits there. There's no booze. It's just a, a counter with, with all these stools. He pulls himself up and sits, and, and this large guy in a very greasy apron comes out from behind in the kitchen smoking a cigar. <laughs> he comes out and says, what do you want? And Campolo said, a cup of coffee, a donut. So the guy pours him a cup of old coffee and then does this number here. Wipes his hand and picks up a donut and gives it to him. He's sitting there trying to enjoy his donut and coffee when about half a dozen prostitutes from Honolulu come into the diner. They sit on either side of him. They're loud, they're talking, they're all friends. And he's kind of caught in the, between them at 3 o'clock in the morning in, in, a, in a whole gaggle of prostitutes. He's like, this is going to make great headlines. And the woman next to him yells out to the woman on the other side of him, and she says, hey, tomorrow is, is my birthday. And the woman on the other side of him says, uh, so? Big deal. What do you want me to do about it? What, you want me to make you a cake and throw you a party? What's, what do you want me to do about it? So it's your birthday. Everybody's got a birthday. And the woman to his right said, no, I, no, I'm not asking you to do anything. I'm not asking you to make a cake. I've never had a cake in my life. I've never had a birthday party. Why would I ask you to give me one? Gee whiz. Well, they continued their conversation, and then they, they went back out. When they left, Campolo spoke to the guy behind the counter. His name's Harry. He says, Harry, come here for a minute. They, these girls, they come in here every night. 
Here he said, yep, every night, same time. What about this, this one here, the woman who was right beside me? Harry said, Agnes. Yeah, A Agnes. She come in here too? Mm-hmm. You know, it's her birthday. I just heard this her birthday tomorrow. I got a crazy idea. Harry, what would you think about, let's, let's throw her a party. I mean, she's never had a party. She just said she'd never had a party in her life. Let's throw her a, a party and maybe decorate the place. Maybe really turn it out. What do, what do you think? Harry said, mister, now that's a great idea. Tony said, okay, well, great. Tomorrow I'll get some crepe paper. I'll get some decorations. We'll come and, and really deck the place out. I'll get a cake. And Harry said, uh-uh-uh, the cake is mine. I got the cake. He said, fine, perfect. The next night came. About 2 o'clock, Tony comes in. They decorate the place. They really deck it out. There's paper. There's balloons. There's signs. And almost every prostitute in Honolulu, he said, it felt like made it to the diner because word had gotten out. And at about 3 o'clock, Agnes and her friends came through the doors. The place erupted with cheers and laughter and surprise. And they started singing happy birthday. She was overwhelmed. She was in complete shock. They usher her right up to the counter and out from the back as they're singing happy birthday. Harry brings this cake that says happy birthday, Agnes. It's got candles on it. They put it in front of her and they say, blow out the candles. She can't. She is stunned. I mean, she can't move. Harry says, Agnes, you got to blow out the candles. <clears throat> Eventually, Harry has to blow out the candles himself. And she starts to weep. Starts to weep. And Harry's like, come on, dry it up, Agnes. Cut the cake. Here's the knife. Go ahead and cut the cake, Agnes. And Agnes turns to Tony and says, do you, do you think it'd be okay if... If I, if I don't cut the cake just yet, well, sure, Agnes, it's your, it's your cake. Do with it what you want to do. I just, I want to show my mother. She's just around the corner. It won't take but just a moment. So she, she picks up this cake in a crowded diner, thick with prostitutes. And she holds this cake and carries it like it's the holy grail. And she takes and shows her mother. And as she leaves, the doors close behind her. And there's not a sound in the diner. Absolutely silent. And Tony's looking around. He's like, what do I do now? This is kind of awkward. I did. So he says, uh, what do you say? We say a prayer for Agnes. And all the girls said, yeah, that'd be good, let's do it. And she began to pray for Agnes. And he prayed his guts out. He prayed that Agnes would be delivered from all the pain and the woundedness of all the ugly things that these terrible men had done to her. He prayed that she would be rescued, that she would be aware that she has more value than she ever thought she had. He prayed and prayed and prayed. And when he was finished praying, there wasn't a dry eye in the diner. And he turns to Harry and Harry says, you are lying to me. He said, Lying to me? What do, you, what do you mean I'm lying to you? I wasn't lying to you. What are you talking about? He said, you said you were a sociologist. Nah, you're a preacher. Now I can tell you're a preacher. He said, what, what kind of church do you go to? 
And in a moment of absolute clarity, Tony Campolo said, uh, Harry, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3 a.m. in the morning. And, and as great an answer as that was, he, Harry had one to even beat it. Harry said, no, you don't belong to a church like that. No, there's no such thing as a church like that to throw a birthday party for hookers at 3 o'clock in the morning. No, sir, because you know why? If there was a church like that, I'd join a church like that. I'd want to be a part of a church like that. And that, my beloved sisters and brothers, is the whole point. The whole point is Christ did not come to create barriers between us and God, but to bulldoze those barriers down so that we have access to the one who knows us and loves us, who meets us right where we are, imperfect and unfinished, and loves us one step at a time toward wholeness. Not just holiness, but wholeness. And you may be listening to what I'm saying today and you be maybe like, you know, that's, that resonates with me. And yes, I've had some wounds because of some religion that's gone bad. And I almost shut it off. I almost walked away, but I'm listening. And I'd like to experience the kind of life you're talking about, but I don't know where to start. You start right where you are. And you say a prayer like this, even right this minute, you say a prayer like this, God, I... I am a mess, and I don't, I don't know how to clean myself up. And I've been so turned off because of people who assume they are more worthy than me, more perfect than me, but I know their stories, Lord. I know they're just as messed up as I am. So if that's the only option for me to be reconciled and close to you, and redeemed, and if, if that's my only option to know you and practice something that I might call faith, well, then I'm out. But if you are listening, and if you would take somebody like me, then here I am. Because I've come to the edge of myself. I've come to the end of all my resources, all of my abilities, and I cannot clean my own life up. And I cannot rescue myself from my own path of self-destruction. So the very thing that I put to death today is the illusion that I am the Lord of my own life. And I confess today that you and only you are my Lord. Take me now in Christ's name. Amen. And friend, if you prayed that prayer, if you whispered it in your own heart and you, and you meant it, then Christ has heard that prayer. It's as if you have reached out to touch the hem of his own garment and he has sensed it and wants you well. So you need to tell somebody now. And I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you, call you out to let somebody know of that thing that's stirring in you. Let me know. I want you to email me at my email address. is sking jcbc.org and I want you to tell me what's stirring in your heart today and maybe we can pray together and we'll get you connected to somebody who can walk the next step of your journey with you but wherever that journey takes you from this moment wherever it is that you go when you get up from where you are may Christ go before you to prepare your way 
May Christ go behind you on the days that you fear and feel like retreating to encourage you one step forward at a time. May Christ go to your right and Christ to your left, abiding closer than even a sister or a brother. May Christ go above you on days when dark clouds roll in to remind you there is one above the clouds who at the end of the day has the final word. May Christ go beneath you, girding you with confidence and removing all forms of fear. But mostly may Christ go in you, transforming you from the inside out until your hearts beat in rhythm with his. Thank you.